G'day and welcome to the Sea Creatures Podcast, a show all about the amazing animals that live beneath the waves. Each episode, we chat about a specific sea creature with a guest who has spent time and interacted with this ocean animal. Our guests range from marine biologists to scuba divers, underwater photographers, citizen scientists, and anyone with an intense passion for marine life. My name is Matt Testoni, and I'm all of the above. And joining me for this episode of the Sea Creatures Podcast is Keith Reed. And Keith is a marine biologist and a passionate expert on many Antarctic animals. And he's done a lot of policy work in that space as well, protecting birds such as the albatross, which is what we're going to be talking all about today. Welcome to the show, Keith. Hi, Matt. It's great to be here. Start us off and tell us, how did you come to work with albatross and have such a passion for them? Well, I guess I've been lucky. I think that's the first, that's probably the most important thing. Since I was a kid, I've always been interested in birds and bird watching. I grew up in the northeast of England where there's not a lot of albatrosses, although we'll come back to that later. But albatrosses, when you saw them, they're the sort of things that you'd see in a bird book and they'd always be something from far, far away, like seeing them on the telly. As I sort of worked through school, uni, um, I then got a job working with British Antarctic Survey. I'd worked in, on seabirds in the Shetland Islands in the north of the UK. Um, again, not many albatrosses there, although there had been one for years and years until the year that I went there and it wasn't there which was a little disappointing. But like I said, after I'd finished uni, I got a, an environmental sciences degree and then got a job with British Antarctic Survey to go to South Georgia to work on, ostensibly on seals and penguins, but there's lots of albatrosses there too. And I remember sailing across from the Falkland Islands and seeing albatrosses at sea for the first time. And, you know, there was that sort of, was a kind of moment when you thought, I'm actually doing this. And I'm actually getting, and the cool thing, I'm actually paid to do it as well. <laughs> and then going somewhere where you can't go, you can't open your eyes during the course of a day and not see an albatross. Wow. And just being able to sit and watch them, you know, not just at sea or not just sort of, you know, flying past a headland or something, but actually sitting in amongst them. It, it sounds almost a little bit sort of poetic, but you say it's a privilege. And it is because it's a lot of, it's the sort of thing that, you know, but for a lucky few breaks in a lot, I could have spent my entire life wishing I could do something like that. And I, I was like, like I said, I was lucky I got the chance to do it. Yeah. Oh, that'd be such an amazing experience being surrounded by them. So tell us what exactly is an albatross and describe one for us. So albatrosses are some of the world's biggest seabirds. You know, that people are quite familiar with seagulls usually. Albatrosses are much bigger. They have much bigger and very stiff wings so they just spend more or less all of their life apart from the brief periods that they come to land to raise their chicks they spend all of their time at sea and they live in typically in the southern hemisphere because they they need wind to fly with they don't flap very much they need a lot of wind to fly and of course in the southern hemisphere particularly the roaring 40s are the ideal place for albatrosses because the wind is just circling and the furious 50s are even better and the whatever the 60s are i'm not sure but the further south you go the winds are stronger so the whole of that area is really good for albatrosses because they use that wind just to be able to fly in a pretty much effortless way for forever and ever yeah we were lucky we satellite tracked albatrosses to see where they go when they're not in their breeding sites and the distances they travel are, are amazing you know there's not a there's not a sort of animal tracking study that seems to go by where 
you know, and find out they go much further than you thought. But when we started to see that albatrosses, like the wandering albatross, you know, during the time they weren't breeding, would actually sort of circumnavigate the Southern Ocean, go right where we studied them in the Atlantic. They go right through the Indian Ocean, the Pacific, and right back round again. Wow. And they're pretty long-lived birds as well. You know, they can live to 30 to 50 years old. So some of these birds could literally have flown the distance to the moon and back. <laughs> wow, because it's, it's something like a 1,000 kilometres on a single wing beat, pretty much, isn't it? It is because what they do that as the wind blows across the surface of the sea, and obviously the surface of the sea is pretty rough. You can imagine a gusty wind over there. What they can do is is use the sort of the power of the wind to get lift, and then they can glide down and then get lift again and glide down. As they use the the way the wind is coming off the waves, yeah. So they can basically just keep going when they need to. They can just keep going in the same direction for an amazing period of time. Yeah, and so yeah, it's kind of like riding a wave, but riding the wind on a wave, like a it's air exactly the exactly the same thing. It's just using sort of natural energy and harnessing it in the right way. And I guess it's one of those things where to use to to carry that riding a wave analogy. If you watch a really good surfer, they make it look effortless. If you're like me, they make it look impossible. But it's the same with albatrosses. You know, you watch them flying and you just think, well, how, how do they manage that? They do actually have some special adaptations to let them do it. You know, most birds, when they flap their wings, they, they, their wings bend at the elbow really easily. But albatrosses actually have a special tendon in their wings that mean when they, they can sort of snap it locked shut. I don't know why I'm moving my arm and making that <laughs> movement, actually. It's just a kind of daft thing that you do. They have their wing kind of snapped shut. If you imagine your wing, your arm is straight and your, el- your elbow doesn't, doesn't bend then. And so they can keep their wings straight and use them, use them like a sail almost so that they, they can just – and they, you watch them flying – and their wingtips can just tip, very tip the water as well sometimes. But you never see an albatross crash. They don't look yeah. quite so clever when they land. But um, <laughs> What's the landing like? So they've got these big wings and they fly. What, what happens then? And they've got big webbed feet. And they, 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 the idea is that they should fly and stall and land really gently. And that doesn't always happen. <laughs> and they t- where, they, where they come to land, where they nest, typically they're on the, the side of slopes for the smaller albatrosses. Wandering albatrosses tend to nest in flat areas. They can look a little bit ungainly. They can sort of come in and land. The, the, the landing gear go down, the big feet go down, um, and you do occasionally get a bit of a nose plant. <laughs> but they, they dust themselves off and they're, they're usually fine. Yeah, because how many species of albatross are there? And, like, what's the kind of range in size? Uh, well, I should know how many species there are, but I probably can't. One of the challenges with a lot of birds, particularly albatrosses, is they nest in quite isolated island groups. And so the taxonomy of albatrosses gets really confusing. And depending on sort of who you read and who you believe about how many different species there are or which ones are just groups of species, it's a, it's, it's a super challenge. The sort of geneticists and the taxonomists like to get together and make things as hard as possible quite often. And for a lot of these species, you can't tell by looking, which is always a bit of a challenge. Here in Tasmania, we have the shy albatross, which nests in the Bass Strait Islands. And in New Zealand, there's the white-capped albatross that nests on, I think, two of the New Zealand islands. And where they, they nest in different places, they have different breeding cycles. They probably have different distributions at sea and things like that. 
But if you had two of them sitting together at sea, you can't really tell them apart. You might be able to if you if you had a particularly lucky set of circumstances, but realistically, you can't. Certainly not when they're flying past your boat. Yeah, and and it's the same with with some of the other albatross species. You know, they some people split them, some people don't, but they range in size from what what we refer to as the smaller molly morts, which are, I guess, the black-browed and grey-headed albatrosses. These, I guess, they're probably sort of six to seven kilograms they've got a wing i mean we call them the smaller ones it's got a wingspan of about two meters so they're big birds right up to the what we call the great albatrosses like the wandering albatross which is the biggest of them all with a sort of three meter plus wingspan weighs up to 10 to 12 kilograms so they're big birds you know when you see them at sea they look because their wings are so long they actually look quite slim and pretty aerodynamic obviously yeah. But for something like a wandering albatross, when you when the first time you walk up to it on its nest, you know, it's it's like a it's like a turkey. It's a huge <laughs> bird. So that's probably doing them a huge injustice there. But so what's it what's it like what's it like being next to a giant turkey sized um albatross? Well, the thing is that the particularly the wandering albatrosses are when they're on they're sitting on their nest. They're super placid. One of the things that we did as part of the, the sort of long-term study is um, all the birds have, most of the birds in the study colony have leg rings. So they have individual rings. They have a metal ring, which has an individual number on, but also a, a plastic colored ring, which you can read from further away. But when the birds are on the nest, sometimes you need to go and check the ring. And there's a, you know, you can just sit down next to them and you can just put your hand underneath, raise the feathers up, look at its leg and just see and carefully and quietly just read its ring number, particularly older birds, because as they get older, they tend to get whiter in their plumage. So you can tell really old birds from young birds, but and particularly old birds just would sort of look around at you and they wouldn't be too worried, which is a relief because a wandering albatrosses have got a beak that's probably about 15 centimetres long, about four centimetres deep, three or four centimetres deep with a hook at the end that could that could do you well i know it can hurt quite a lot if you get if you get your technique wrong that's amazing and yet you know they just sort of look around and think oh, what are you what are you doing back there and they're fine you know i said before about that sort of privilege thing you're doing things like that and thinking this is this is such a such a privilege to be able to do this sort of stuff you know you can't take it for granted but it's one of those things where you feel really lucky because you've got a job where you have to go and do something that you would sort of give your eye teeth to do anyway. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. And I just can't believe that you can just lift up their wing and just have a look at their leg and they don't bite you with that huge beak. Well, they don't. And often, you know, you see pictures of birds as part of their sort of courtship display, do mutual preening. You know, the one bird will preen the other bird. If anthropomorphize, it's almost like little kisses, you know. Like, but with the wandering albatrosses, they do before they come back to nest, they have to form really strong pair bonds for the, between the male and the female. Because actually, when they're breeding, they spend relatively little time together at the nest. There's no real merit in being both being there. So the the actual contact hours that they have between each other as a pair are actually quite small. So they spend a long time choosing their mate before they breed. So our wandering albatross might not breed till it's 12, 10 or 12 years old, perhaps even older. So they need to know that partner bird really well. And in the pre-breeding period, they have these display groups where the, typically the males will hold their wings out to show what fantastic wings he's got and make a lot of noise. And then 
often quite a bit of mutual preening and things goes on. And sometimes if you're just sitting down next to a group that are displaying like this, I've had this happen to me that one of the birds just wandered over and sort of had a look. And I had like a, like a baseball cap on and it just started to nibble along the front of my baseball cap. And I just thought, well, it's got a beak that could take my <laughs> ear off if it wanted to, but it's not, hopefully it's not going to do that. And then it just kind of pulled at my cap and took it off. And eventually it preened along um, my eyebrow and I have never sat so still in my life. You know, when the, the, even you're getting your hair cut and you just try and sit still in the barber shop where I was sitting stock still. And it did this and then obviously realized that I was like the ugliest albatross that had ever seen and wandered <laughs> off. But again, you know, it, it's that thing where you're, you're immersed in nature in that way. And you just sort of think it's just such a, such a lucky place to be. Wow. Oh, that's, that's an amazing story. I can't believe you got <laughs> preened by an albatross. So I just want to go back to like, you know, they kind of form these bonding pairs. Are they monogamous? Like they, they are monogamous, but are they truly monogamous? I think that it, monogamy is one of those things where it's a strategy that's successful of monogamy because it takes so long to form that pair bond that then, then having invested all of that time and effort in finding the right mate then you don't want to have to go through that process again. That's not to say, for example, a, a male bird might always pair with the same female, but that doesn't necessarily rule out distributing the chances of him fathering one or two other chicks as well. Um, and with some, like with grey-headed albatrosses, for example, they only breed every second year, but we would still record a number because we were in the colonies every day recording which birds are there. And you'd still record male birds who were in their sort of off-season they would sometimes turn up at the sort of peak of, of mating, you know, just to see what might be, just to see what might be happening, you know. <laughs> but the other thing about that strong pair bond, particularly for something like wandering albatrosses, it has a real kind of conservation issue around it as well. Because when we were working on this wandering albatross, is still work is still ongoing. When I was involved in it, particularly in the early 90s, there was a lot of female albatrosses being caught in longline fisheries on the Patagonian shelf. And this is still a, a big issue for albatrosses today. The capture of albatrosses in fisheries is driving population declines in, in nearly all albatross species. But it's particularly an issue where you might have the numbers of birds being caught might not be as high as you would think would cause a, a decline in the population. But if they're very much skewed towards one sex, so in the, in the case of female albatrosses being caught much more in the Patagonian shell fisheries, it may take a male bird three or four years to, re, to find a mate and to, to set up a new breeding pair. And particularly for old males, mm. where they've been an established pair for a long time, old males might not offer a particularly good partner bird for a, for a newly paired up bird. One of the things that, that we were really keen to look at was what are the effects of, of you know, the, the population decline of these birds being driven not only by birds being caught in fisheries, but the fact that there was a, a, a quite different sex ratio and the impact that has on, on that sort of monogamous type lifestyle. Why are females caught more on these longline trawlers? Well, most, most species of of seabirds and a lot of marine mammals, seals and things that come to breed on land, that's often the only time of the year when the males and females kind of hang out together. Because in order to partition resources between the sexes, they very often use quite different habitats during the rest of the year. 
And particularly in the Southwest Atlantic, what we found was that female albatrosses tended to move when the when they weren't together. Female albatrosses foraged further north. Male albatrosses foraged further south. Wow! And by going further north, those female albatrosses were interacting with a lot more fishery in the in the Atlantic and on the Patagonian shelf. So it was it was simply because female albatrosses were foraging in the area where there was more fishing taking place. They were getting caught more. Yeah. Wow. And so I know like it is quite a big issue with pollution and longline fisheries um, causing declines in the albatross. But there's also things that you're doing to help the chicks on different islands and so on, isn't there? There is stuff that can be done. I mean, I know locally that you, know, you can make artificial nests and things and try to help chicks. But I guess being sort of harsh about it, that's, that's putting a little Band-Aid over. Yeah over a bullet hole really you know unless we unless we can genuinely stop the problems that the chicks are facing because the the problems that the chicks are facing on an island are typically just a a reflection of the issues the parents are facing while they're out at sea so things like the impacts of of longline fishing um, and and also not just longline fishing but trawl fishing as well all sorts of fishing where where basically you know fishing vessels are putting out food for birds in dangerous places really yeah um, whether that's baited hooks that are being thrown at the back of a boat or on trawlers they're, they're chucking out fish waste and offal in an area where there are metal warps going down to the net in the water that the birds can get caught on so that's really the the big issue with with all fishing and and particularly with albatrosses the other issue of course is is plastic pollution you know when when we were doing work on even in the 1990s when this the sort of knowledge and awareness of the marine plastics perhaps wasn't quite that it what it is now sadly because we didn't fix it you know we'd often find things like disposable cigarette lighters next to albatross nests and like rubber washing up gloves and those sorts of things yeah and those particularly the red plastic cigarette lighters because if you imagine that at the surface of the sea, it looks just like a sort of red crustacean, like a prawn or a shrimp or a krill or something like that. And sadly, when birds sort of swoop down to pick something up, they don't have time to sort of mosey up to it, have a bit of a look-see and see if it really is what they think it is. Because by the time they've ummed and ahed a little bit, someone else has, has eaten it. So typically, they're, they're pretty quick to gulp stuff down. So this is something that an albatross has gulped down, come back, fed to its chick, its chicks probably gulped it down as well and then regurgitated it. So if you imagine these sorts of plastics, uh, and the same, we'd find the same with, with fish hooks as well quite often, that they've been inside the adult and fed to the chick and then regurgitated. There's, there's a little bit of that plastic pollution inside of all of those, both of those, about the parents and the chicks. And for every bit that gets regurgitated successfully, we obviously don't know what, yeah. what doesn't, what, what remains. So... In many respects, you know, the Southern Ocean, you sort of think, well, that's going to be a pretty clean and tidy place compared to, say, I mean, a lot of people will have seen the images of the, the, the plastic toys that the albatrosses that live in the Pacific, you know, they, they have a stomach full. It looks like the sweepings from a toy factory sometimes, you know, little plastic soldiers and all sorts wow. of things because they're, they're picking things off the surface of the sea all the time. Yeah. And particularly in the Pacific where we know that there's a huge garbage patch of plastics these birds are just, they're, they're evolved to pick food from the surface of the sea. And sadly, we've mixed up that food with an awful lot of plastic waste now. Yeah, it's, it really does shine a light on 
yeah, the the need to reduce this plastic issue. I was going to say it it does, and I think that you know you know to go back to what I said at the outset about you know being lucky to work on albatrosses, you know most people would see albatrosses maybe on TV uh, or or in books and probably don't get it you know don't get a chance to see them. They spend most of their time in places that that we don't see them because they're out in the middle of the open ocean, and so. I think for them to be bringing that message to people to say, hey, look, you know, these these birds just kind of fly around in these super remote places. And yet they're picking up little plastic toy soldiers and cigarette lighters. And those are not things that got dumped in situ. Those are things that people on land have put in the bin, thrown away, and they've been they've been dumped out at sea. And and I think the message about not using the, the the ocean as a kind of a, a an out of sight out of mind dumping ground is something that you know has has obviously in the last few years got a lot more airtime a lot more traction and some pretty high level advocates as well and that can be nothing but a good thing but I shall stand down from my soapbox and talk about <laughs> albatrosses a bit more no I think it's it's important and I I love talking about these issues kind of in the middle of the show because we start off on what's really cool and then. We do want to like we do want to know what the threats are, and then we'll try and we'll try and raise it up a bit so we get a bit more excited about <laughs> albatross, you know, because there is hope. But like, so you mentioned the cigarette lighters, but what when they're not taking those? What do albatross feed on, and how do they do it? Albatrosses tend to feed on well, most of the big albatrosses feed on a combination of fish and squid. Very often, a lot of squid. It's interesting because when the chicks when the parents regurgitate to the chicks. To find out what they're feeding on, sometimes we would kind of sneakily intercept that food and to see what they've been feeding on. But also, if you can imagine being an albatross chick, I don't know if you can or not really, but the, the sort <laughs> big of big and fluffy, I imagine. Yeah, but as an albatross chick, what tends to happen is that you, and this happens to lots of birds, really. But as an albatross chick, you get fed infrequent very large meals. So your parents come home every now, every couple of days, as you get older, every two or three days, maybe longer, and feed you an enormous meal, which you then sit there and digest for a few days. <laughs> Lovely lifestyle. <laughs> um, but then as an adult albatross, that, that takes a lot of energy because you've got to transport that back to land, all that food. So when you're an adult albatross when you're out foraging at sea on your own you'll, you'll be eating relatively frequent small meals rather than try you know eating for yourself yeah. and then taking all this food back to a chick so actually the stomach of an albatross as an adult is probably smaller than the stomach size of the chick wow and the chick gets fed all of these squid and things like that and i don't know if if people know but one of the really cool things about squid is they they have a beak which is a bit like a parrot's beak that's how they that's how they eat their food but sort of where the where the at the end of the body before all the tentacles start inside that is their mouth parts and they are shaped like a parrot's beak and they're made of keratin and they don't get digested they're very tough obviously because there's no point in having a soft beak and so that's well, that's what they eat with but it's also each species of squid has a very distinct beak pattern so you can find these beaks and you can actually identify the species of squid from them Wow, because they regurgitate them between meals, or yeah, because what happens with uh, with the end before before they're getting before they're ready to fledge, the albatross chick's stomach starts to shrink to the size it'll need to be as a, an adult, and as it does that, they regurgitate this, this sort of bolus <laughs> of all of these squid beaks that have been sticking around in their tummies that haven't been digested, 
and you can collect them and, and hunt through and find the ones you can identify. So we know the sorts of species of squid that they eat. And what's interesting is when you when you sort of talk to squid biologists and look at books about squid, these are squid that are found at sort of 100 wow. meters depth or something like that, or 200 meters or even deeper. And you sort of think, well, that's not where the albatross got them from. Yeah. And for some squid, we know when they when they die, they actually float so albatrosses can get them at the surface. But also we've seen albatrosses feeding in association with, with pilot whales, for example, where they drive those squid up to the surface. So there's a sort of accessibility thing driven by different species. But realistically, for, for a lot of these species like that, you know, we, we don't know how much time those squids spend at the surface, but they're obviously enough for the albatrosses yeah. to feed on. But also, you know, albatrosses cover enormous areas. So you don't have to have very many, but, but enough. So a lot of the time we can find out about the distribution of some of these squid species that are really hard to study. You can actually find that out from the albatrosses themselves. Yeah. Particularly if we satellite track the albatrosses and then see what they've been feeding on when they, when they come back. It's one of those things that often those sorts of studies kind of challenge the conventional wisdom about where things live and you know what depths they are and whereabouts they are. So, well, the albatross got it from here, so it, you know it, it must have been there. <laughs> oh, I just can't imagine like flying for hundreds of kilometers to just find a few squid for dinner. Like that's yeah, that's quite a journey. It, it is, but like like yeah. we said before, you know they can fly in a pretty effortless way. So, if we think about us making that sort of journey, yeah, for a couple of squid, it wouldn't be worthwhile. But <laughs> they're better at it than us. <laughs> And so kind of go on to like a few different like cool facts because I love a few cool facts. And the first one I want to talk about is I know that like obviously there's no fresh water in the ocean. So they have little noses that secrete salt. Tell us a little bit about that. That's amazing. Yeah. So if you, if you ate a squid that lives in salt water, in its intra and extracellular water, there is fresh water to drink. But squid fish they can get some some water from those but actually secreting the salt is something that albatrosses do really well and actually they have these little salt secreting glands on their beaks which allows them to sort of to feed in in a place where they yeah you couldn't take a bowl of water up to an albatross and expect it to have a drink like you like you might do with a, a chicken or a pigeon or something like that because they'd look at it and go well what is that and um, they never land any they never <laughs> land anywhere and, and, and drink water like fresh water yeah, but they're able to cope with with that pretty well. Just actually, quite often when you when you see an albatross, one of the most noticeable things about it is their beak, and they have these really, really, really distinct nostrils. And that's because one of the things that they they use to find prey more than vision is actually smell. Because if you imagine traveling thousands of kilometers over the surface of the ocean, and if you're only, you know, a couple of meters, two or three meters above the surface, you really can't see very far. So actually, albatrosses are, are not navigating to their prey by sight. They're navigating much more by their sense of smell. So whilst they couldn't see a squid at the surface, sort of 10 kilometers, they might well be able to smell it. 10 kilometers wow. might be a bit optimistic, but, um, but they can smell, <laughs> they can forage using their sense of smell to get them to the right place. And then once they, when they're close enough, they see what they're going to feed on and then, then they can actually get it. But that, that sense of smell and that, that sort of landscape of smell across the surface of the ocean is something that humans are obviously really, really poor at understanding. 
but it's something that is interesting if you talk to I remember chatting to this about about this with a, a guy who'd done one of those kind of insane round the world solo yachting things he'd done the southern ocean part and he said yeah you can you smell the sea is different in different places and I guess wow. I said to him, he must be, you know, I've never been on a ship that didn't have the smell of the engines going and things like that. Um, but for them, it must <laughs> be very different. And he said, oh, yeah, you can definitely smell it. So maybe some humans have got a, an idea of that sort of smell landscape. But seabirds and particularly albatrosses, that's, that's very much how they, they forage, very much how they find their way around. Yeah. It might even be how they find their way back to the nest, although we don't, again, we don't, we don't know how they do all of their navigating, but they do it very well. So it would be it would be cool to know how they did it. Yeah, I love a good ocean mystery because people think we we know everything, and we definitely don't, we, do we? We we definitely don't. I mean, there are some there are some things that it would be kind of cool to know just just for a sort of academic interest, but you know, like for for some things, it's cool to know because then we can work out how to how to make sure that they. We don't we don't interrupt that too much. We don't break it up um, and make it harder for them to forage. Yeah, yeah. Have you got any favourite facts or any really cool facts that we haven't spoken about yet about these birds? You must have a few of it. Well, I think that one of the things is you know you can get birds that nest together, like two two species of albatross, like black-browed albatross and grey-headed albatrosses nest almost side by side sometimes in, in their colonies. They're about the same size. They look ostensibly pretty similar. One's got a grey head, one's got a kind of black eyebrow, but that's really about all the difference when you look at them. And yet you can walk through that a colony of the two species together and they're such different characters. A black-browed albatross, they're super feisty. You know, if you walk through next to them, they'll try and peck you. They'll have a go every time you walk past one. They'll, they'll want a little bit of your particularly around the back of your calf as you've just walked past and things like that <laughs> that was that's from memory but grey-headed albatrosses will just kind of watch you go pie they'll just kind of tilt their head a little bit and watch you go past and so these two birds that you know you think well they, they're pretty similar do the same sort of things just completely different characters if you like and you know that that sort of translates into how they how they behave at sea as well you know, behind fishing vessels, black-browed albatrosses are pretty pretty aggressive. They get to the front of the queue to get stuff that gets tipped over the edge. And grey-headed albatrosses don't don't involve themselves in that sort of thing so much. And so there's this sort of link, I suppose, between their sort of their behaviour and their character. That you know, when you when you study birds, it's quite often you don't have time necessarily to watch them just and see see what what kind of players they are and so that's that's kind of cool being able to do that sort of thing and just seeing yeah. that you know you see them at sea and you see them you know you can be working on them but just having that time to sort of just watch them and, and see the differences in their behavior is, is pretty cool yeah what's the what's the coolest thing you've seen with the albatross apart from being preened because that is pretty cool but what do you think is the coolest thing I remember actually there was a because they because they obviously they ride the wind currents and we were we'd been waiting for birds with satellite tags on um, to come back to the to the colony. I know this still happens. And if you get a few days of really calm weather, the birds don't tend to come back because they like a bit of wind, particularly where they're coming back to an island because they want wind to get enough lift to come back to land on the island. So we get a few days of really calm weather. There's not many birds coming back. 
And then if you get a big storm or typically the day before a big storm is coming, if the birds have been foraging somewhere else, if the wind's starting to pick up and literally just the sky being full of, of albatrosses all coming back you know, ahead wow. of a storm. And you sort of think they all must have come from such a large area. Some of them have come, well, we know from because we were trying to catch birds to take satellite tags off them. Some have come sort of thousands of kilometers in less than 24 hours. Whoa. And so you're sort of watching this and just kind of, you know, wondering how, 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 how do they manage all of this? <laughs> <laughs> One of the kind of, it's not, I don't know if it's not so much a cool fact, but there's a, a lot of, sort of myth and legend in amongst the sort of maritime community about albatrosses, you know, whether they bring good luck, bad luck, whatever and it was certainly samuel taylor coleridge wrote the rhyme of the ancient mariner where the guy that killed the albatross was sort of it wasn't good luck for him it brought bad luck to the vessel so they sort of strung him up and and it's one of the things that you know we've we've sort of slightly lamented that the rhyme of the ancient mariner has has not sort of held true in the sort of in the superstitions of the seagoing people because it would have been much better if they did think that albatross killing an albatross brought you lots and lots of bad luck because then it might help them not get taken quite so much by fishing vessels but um, hasn't quite played out that way um, perhaps we should it's kind of a myth you need to yeah, start no, again yeah we could have put a, put a put a bit of sort of fire under the myth but as scientists that's a that's a kind of challenging thing to do but as needs must perhaps <laughs> Well, so just before we finish up, if people are really keen to see an albatross, uh, what should they do and like where, what kind of areas should they go to? And how do you tell an albatross from, say, a gannet or a seagull, like a big seagull? So obviously, you know, kind of globally, it depends where you are. If you're a, if you're a kid growing up in the north of England, your chances of seeing an albatross are pretty slim. Although, as I said at the beginning, very occasionally albatrosses do end up in the UK. Um, in fact, this this year, there was a black-browed albatross that took up residence in a gannet colony in the in Yorkshire, in the northeast of England, and, and proved to be a, a hugely attractive bird for a lot of birders in the UK to go and see, because it's an awful lot cheaper than a flight to the South Atlantic to go and see them there. But kind of closer to what is my home now in Tasmania, you don't have to go very far to be able to see shy albatrosses, for example. If you want to see them well, you need to be in a boat. But you can see them from headlands um, around Tasmania. And one of the things that, that you can really notice, say you said, how do you tell them apart from a gannet? So a gannet is a, has a white body with black wingtips and shy albatrosses have a, a, a white body, but their back is the same color as their wings. So they have sort of gray right across their wings. Gannets fly in straight lines. Albatrosses tend to fly in very big loopy lines. So they'll go up in the air swoop back down, up in the air and swoop back down. And, and if you watch how they fly, they're very different and very distinct. You know, I can, I can see an albatross and it literally it's miles and miles away. And you know it's an albatross because of what it's doing and the way it's flying. And as you get used to that, you can, you can tell. You know, if it's flapping its wings a lot, it's probably not an albatross. I like that. I like that. I've always wanted to be that birder who can look out and just be like, oh, yeah, it's flying in a loop, no flapping, albatross. And it just comes with time. Just, I mean, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, like anybody, you know, people will have their special skills. It's a good excuse to keep looking at albatrosses. <laughs> awesome. Well, that kind of brings us to the end. Thanks heaps for being on the show. And 
if anyone wants to learn a bit more about albatross, what should they do or where should they go? A good place to go, actually, is there's an, a, an international agreement, which the acronym is ACAP, and it's the Agreement on the Conservation of Albatrosses and Petrels. Um, so if you Google albatross agreement or something like that, you'll probably find it pretty quickly. And um, that's an international agreement that was set up in response to the conservation status of a lot of albatross species that's trying to get lots of countries to agree on measures for their, particularly for their fisheries, to stop the, the amount of albatrosses that are being, being killed each year. And that's a really good source of information about albatrosses in particular and get inspired by it. Because to be honest, there's, there's a limited amount that people can do day to day that will change their outcome. But that's a limited amount. But if we all did that, if we all did that limited amount, then, then things would change. And that would, be a, that would be a cool thing. So if people are inspired by albatrosses. I would say get inspired and just do one little thing to help them. Yeah. If we all did that, things would be things would be much better. Yeah, even things like picking up that red cigarette lighter off the beach when you go down there and putting it in the bin, I guess, yeah. is, a, is a big step. If you see a bit of plastic on the beach, that's not someone else's responsibility. You can't unsee that. Yeah. Pick it up, take it home. Yeah, well, on that note, thanks very much for being on the show. That's been a pleasure, Matt. See you later. Secrets Podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by myself, Matt Testoni. You can see my photography on Instagram at Matt underscore Testoni underscore photography. And you can visit the Sea Creatures podcast Instagram at Sea Creatures underscore podcast. Assistant production by George McGraw and music by the talented and amazing Dan Musel. If you've liked the show, please give us a review or send us a message and let us know what your favorite episode is. We also have a Patreon account where for a small donation each month, you can help support the running costs of the show. Coming up next time on the Sea Creatures podcast, we're going to be talking more about orcas, a.k.a. killer whales, with author Hannah Struger. And she's just published a really cool book all about their culture. So we're going to learn a little bit more about the science and culture of orcas. This has been the Sea Creatures podcast. Over and out.